Hello and welcome to the Talk Neuro to Me podcast. In this episode, Professor Carrick discusses the neurological components of gaze following, including an anatomical basis for research and clinical applications. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, we were talking about uh, following gaze last day, and we're going to continue talking about that so that we might be able to understand what we can do in research models and understand what happens uh, with our patients. We know that we like to use animal models uh, for a variety of reasons, but when we use these models for human gaze following uh, behavior, when we use animals, you have to be able to determine whether the individual animal will follow gaze in the same manner as, as a person does. And in order to do this, you need to understand the same things that are very important to us when we look at uh, our clinical applications. So when you look at your patients and you're going to see some gaze-following behavior, is it is it really an orientating uh, reflex where individuals are trying to place themselves in two or three dimensional space, where am I, or is it mediated by the representation of something else? Is the gaze following an innately specified reflex, for instance, something that is learned in association with something else, or is it a behavioral strategy? Is it conscious, such as a a smile, a wink, uh, something like this? So at least some animals are going to use both the head and eye cues that will allow us to to really define gaze and follow gaze uh, geometrically, but a lot of uh, these animals don't seem to be able to uh, guide their individual uh, behavior. But let's look at the psychophysics of gaze following itself. So we know that all of us have an ability to represent the consequences of what we think is happening in somebody else's head, of what they're thinking of, their social uh, modules and, and things like that. Now, Baron Cohen, back in 1994, had a very seminal work that argued that there were four crucial modules to detect eye uh, direction, such as the intention of the person, something that's going to detect that, uh, and a shared attention mechanism, and a theory of of mind uh, mechanism as well. Now, Emery and Parrott in 2000 refined uh, this idea by proposing two modular detectors, in other words, having one for the direct and one for the the pointed attention, the deictic attention. And both of these proposals are grounded in some very old framework that was uh, contemplated by Fodor, in which the modularity was really a matter of uh, encapsulating the information and allowing us to facilitate an efficient, speedy reflexogenic processing. <clears throat> now, such claims made very strong predictions about how a pointed gaze following, a uh, deictic gaze, should influence attention. And the tension, of course, has been dichotomized as either being reflexogenic or being volitional. So when you see a patient moving their eyes, do you want to move those eyes? In other words, uh, is it a volitional thing or do you have a faulty uh, left uh, frontal lobe such that the right frontal lobe is moving those eyes over and you can't help it? We have a whole load of reflexive orientation uh, or orientation uh, that is uh, you know, stimulus-driven. It can be automatic. It can be exogenous. It can be evoked locally. 
by changes in the region of space, such as a, a mesencephalic type of stimulation or motion. It can have different attentional deployments, and it can come up and it can go away very, very quickly. We also realize that we can have a volitional attention to things that are consciousness. Uh, they can be top-down, you want to do it. They can be goal-directed. They can be endogenous rather than the exogenous type of uh, reflexogenic types of, of eye movements. And these can be evoked by very complex or symbolic cues or distant cues that really are going to allow you or your patient or any human being to make predictions that are task relevant resulting in different sustained uh, deployments of body parts or other types of activities. So oftentimes you'll have different tonus of muscle depending upon what the individual perceives is happening in his or her uh, worldview. And this, of course, is very, very important uh, for us when we looked at the observed gaze of our patients. We need to look at uh, what our patients are looking at, what gives them attention, and find out really what's happening in their mind to see if the activities of their eyes and their fixative gaze is as a consequence of a, of a reflexive uh, social module, or if it's from volitional activity, which gives us a, a really a, a um, domain general orientating type of decision, or is there a whole load of things that are coming from multiple uh, pathways. And we also need to look at how this reflexogenic gaze following is related to what the person believes or what we believe is happening with the behavior of an individual's gaze and, and a personal viewpoint. We also need to know if the, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to know if the behavior of gaze following, is it the same for all human beings or is this a, specific individual trait that is different and uh, what is the neural mechanism. So let's talk a little bit about the um, the reflexes that we're going to see. That is to say we know that there is some non-predictive eye gaze cues which are going to change an individual patient's time of reaction and their accuracy at detecting, localizing, and discriminating peripheral targets. We see these with saccadic dysmetria, uh, whether it be hypometria or hypermetria. We can see with frontal lesions. We can see with cerebellar types of lesions. We know that um, there is basically uh, parallel results using head gaze cues that were pioneered by Langdon and Bruce about 10 years ago. And then Driver and uh, that group in 1999 reported that subjects will follow gaze even when cues were counterpredictive of the eventual target uh, location. So this is so very, very important that gives us the reality that all of us have a reflexogenic, uh, informationally encapsulated module that mediates the human gaze following. So when we look at the, um, the gaze following reflex, we know that it comes early in development and this will have some concept in, in social learning or to say differently, if you see a child that doesn't develop gaze following, there's a probability of behavioral problems and we can make some very, very important changes uh, right away, the vestibular system, moving a child, rocking a child, simulating otoliths and labyrinthine systems can 
uh, assist in engaged following. Now, we know that young kids are going to follow uh, photographed eye gaze uh, over tongue movement. So they love looking at eyes. Now, gaze is, is something that the facial cues also are associated with, uh, with eye activities, perhaps maybe a smile or, or something else. So that we are going to say that infants are going to ignore uh, tongue movements and they're going to follow gaze. But when the, the gaze shifts by translating the face outline, things, things change, which means to say kids are going to be dependent upon different signaling from their environment, such as they're going to look at your eyes when you look at them, that mutual gaze. And especially if you speak at them and you look at them, it's something that, hey, by speaking at this child, hey, Kuchiku, how are you? It's going to increase the likelihood that a gaze cue will be followed. So it's very important that we use language in the development of gaze cues. And you need to teach your parents to speak to kids and speak to them in regards to their environment and get them to engage in this looking very, very therapeutic, especially in these childhood developmental uh, types of uh, disorders. So the gaze following that we're going to see is is a lot of the times is is reflexogenic. We know that the social content can modulate the gaze following of an individual, and that we're going to have certain cues that that are going to have to be embraced, especially in infancy. And as a consequence, we're going to realize that the ability to appreciate emotional expressions are, are have a very good probability of potentiating reflexogenic gaze. So when we say emotional expressions, these are things that are seen by your amygdala. Do you know what a smile is? Do you know what other things are? And if a kid cannot grab the emotional expressions, if they're a little flat because of basal ganglionic misdevelopment or probabilities in the frontal striatal dopaminergic pathways that gate the, uh, the, uh, the basal ganglion, then we're going to expect that they may not develop that reflexogenic gaze followings. And if they don't do this, then we're going to have some social problems and in attentiveness. We know that you're going to have different influences on gaze, and we want to be able to embrace that in our individual uh, treatments. So uh, the gaze following mechanism is such that the variables in the environment that would enhance gaze following are going to be really associated with an increasing social cueing. We know that joint attention deficits are associated with the failure to fixate in the eye region. We know that failure to fixate the eyes is going to rob your patients of, of brain activation. And the brain activation that they're robbed of is that character of high resolution, visual, social information that may indicate a a broader insensitivity to or even an avoidance of social stimuli. So let's look at eye gaze perception. It can be disrupted when it's presented outside the area of the fovea, which means to say outside of these areas of, of accurate activity, especially when seen when people have head tilts or other activities that would move the eyes in the yaw plane such that a visual target may not strike the individual uh, fovea itself. But realistically, your gaze following is not going to be that accurate if the item of gaze is not uh, fovealized. So these things are very, very 
important types of uh, types of effects. We know that we have these uh, dectic uh, clues uh, and cues which will give us reflexively driven attention, and uh, this is dependent upon where your head is, where your body parts are, what you're looking at, if there's something that is is novel and uh, non-predictive. So let's look at what people look at versus what they perceive because if you look at gaze following, you're looking up at something, the, 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 in, the individual activity is what are you looking at? What is the psychophysical concomitants of what you're looking at? And there are a couple of sets that suggest um, gaze following and gaze perception have a probability of involving mechanisms that are dissociable. The first one regarding the precision with which your your gate is your gaze is resolved, and then secondly, how you're going to integrate um, cues that are conflicting. You want to look at something to the right, but something else is is coming out to the left. So, what are you actually uh, perceiving? These things are very important questions. Well, I guess you get the idea that you need to be able to develop this case following. If you don't, it's associated with developmental delays and behavioral problems that go into adulthood. So for most of our purposes, we say, what's the neurology of this? What is the mechanism? And we know that we're, we have to use a subcortical streaming that is, well, it's basically conserved across uh, all chordate animals. Good review by uh, Romer way back way back then, uh, recently uh, Johnson's work in 2005. But we, we've got these pathways that will be sensitized in regards to gaze, and we know that the uh, dectic gaze representations are most strongly supported in the brain, and there's been a whole bunch of studies, particularly meta-analyses, that have identified gaze sensitivity in the superior temporal sulcus and the dorsal and ventral frontal parietal attention networks. And that work has been done by Calder, C-A-L-D-E-R, just last year. So the, the fact is, is that we, we've got to say, how do these gaze perceptions influence our orientation in the environment? And basically, how do we deal with what we're thinking with in regards what we're seeing or what is this concept of... Uh, of mind and body and uh, conceptualization. In order to understand that, we have to look at the subcortical pathways. And in humans, we've got to have some flow from what you see, that is to say, from the retina of your eye, to the superior colliculus, then to the pulvinar, and then to the amygdala. We know that the amygdala is very, very instrumental in looking at what faces mean, a smiley face versus a frowning face. Now, each of these individual regions, of course, are modulators. They are integrated by a variety of different pathways, and they process a whole load of information from the uh, superior collicular tectospinal pathways, from their different activities that are associated with head positioning in regards to a visual type of process or, or an individual uh, reli. We know that all of these areas, the colliculi, the pulvinar, the, the amygdala, all of these individual activities are going to receive uh, projections that come from above. Uh, that is to say, from the areas of your brain that are actively evoked by your environment, such as the fusiform 
gyrus, the extra striated body area, as well as the superior temporal uh, sulcus. So we've got a whole load of neurological pathways, and, and the reason it's important for us to realize this is that we've got certain sensitivities that will tell us about certain things we might want to do therapeutically. We know that the amygdala is very, very sensitive to observed gaze and is known to play a great role in social saliency uh, processing. Uh, the amygdala is sexually dimorphic. Uh, Goldstein's work in 2001 showed it. We know that in the autistic uh, kid, uh, it's not functioning right, suggesting a whole load of things because most uh, autistic people are are boys. Uh, we look at different concepts of, of sex hormones. For, for instance, uh, uh, how does testosterone affect these gaze responses? We know that the amygdala, uh, so far in studies, has not been shown to represent this uh, dectic gaze as opposed to threat and uh, the sort of things you see when you flirt with somebody, when you're looking at eyes or little smiles and things like that. But we have uh, a fair amount of knowledge that the amygdala, think of the amygdala as the tail of the caudate. So it says straight, and now does the, the caudate wag the amygdala or does the tail wag the dog? Different people think different ways, but we do know that the amygdala is implicated in both reflexogenic gaze-following behaviors as well as intentional gaze-following behaviors. And while we don't have projections from the amygdala to the uh, orientating system of the visual axes, we can differentiate regions of visual space with amygdala relationships. Let's look a little bit at the superior temporal sulcus. We know that these are very, very important areas in in social uh, processing. And we see this across uh, different animals. There's relationships, of course, between uh, mammals, uh, cats, dogs, of course, primates. <clears throat> and the first neurons that are sensitive to observed gaze um, were seen to be near the superior temporal sulcus. And this was found, you know, in, in the... Uh, uh, in, in the monkey, uh, we know that we have similar gaze sensitivity in the human superior temporal sulcus as well. So this is very, very important when you're observing uh, gaze behavior that is of surprise. Something happens, do they look up there? Well, this is a really large area. It's got a whole load of subregions and a whole load of inter uh, connectivity. That is to say, we've got this uh, junction, if you would, between the the frontal lobe, the anterior regions, and and the posterior parietal lobe. So we've got uh, this communication between the frontal and visual cortices, and the neurons that are located in the middle anterior upper bank of the superior temporal sulcus are going to represent a gaze direction that is completely independent of whether that gaze direction arises because of the position of your head or your antalgia or a dystonic posturing or the position of your of your eyes so that we're going to find that different neurons in this in the superior temporal sulcus will respond preferentially to different head position or eye position for instance if you look at the superior temporal sulcus and look at the base of it the caudal neurons respond symmetrically to gaze that's averted to either the right or the left side, and the anterior neurons in the superior temporal 
uh, temporal sulcus will differentiate the eidetic gaze direction. So by knowing this, we can look at simple environmental activities to stimulate either the anterior or the caudal portion of the superior temporal sulcus. When we look at activation of the back or the caudal neurons, we want to look at an individual uh, with gaze aversion. We see this, for instance, turn your head to the right and move your eyes to the left. That evokes a cerebellar uh, activity when you're moving your eyes to the right, pushes the eyes to the left. And if the eyes are going there, you have a very good probability that you're going to hit a target if you were previously uh, hypometric. So we know that in the posterior superior temporal sulcus, we've got uh, neurons with uh, deactic gaze uh, activities, although in, in human uh, beings, the gaze sensitivity, the deactic gaze sensitivity is more in the front of the superior uh, temporal sulcus. So when we look at a variety of lesions, we can see a whole load of different probabilities. We know that we're going to have visual social areas that it allows us to deal with other people and integrate, be good work product people, do a variety of, of interesting uh, types of things. So that when we look at the fusiform gyrus and the superior temporal sulcus, we know that these have got to interact and that we know that the interaction has to include a ability of the mind to interpret what they're seeing, specifically facial types of networks of known faces, of strange faces, etc. So we've got to take uh, both the perception of what the, the body is doing, perception of what the face is doing, with different contextual signals that are coming in integrated aspects from the amygdala again, the orbital frontal cortex and the and the hippocampus itself. So when we look at this interlinking of areas, we really have a functional circuit that is going to modulate everything that you can imagine or anything that you can feel or anything that you can physically do in regards to the motoric event uh, that is based upon your own limbic emotionality and, and the processing of what you perceive as the position space of your arms and legs and core musculature that has an emotional uh, consequences. Now, when we look at an individual that averts their gaze, and you know what I'm talking about, you look at a patient, they look away from you, or you're asking a kid a question, they look away from you, that averted gaze, that perception of averted gaze when someone can't look you in the eye, this has been reported to, to activate neurons in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. That is to say, when you perceive someone averting your gaze, you activate this dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. How can you use it? You ask an individual, okay, look at me. As soon as they look at you, you look away. When you do that, you're going to activate their neurons in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. This is high. This is emotional. This is something that you can do. Of course, when you see someone avert your gaze, it gets your old mind working. What's happening there? What are they doing? Da, 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 da. It's very important therapeutically when we need to evoke some, some activities, especially in kids with developmental types of problems. We know that the 
left superior frontal gyrus is very, very important in regards to language areas and social and symbolic uh, types, of, uh, types of attention. We also know that the frontal parietal attention networks <clears throat> are very, very important in, uh, in gaze following. We know that the uh, cortical social perception areas uh, that allow us to exist are going to project to the frontal parietal, parietal areas. And these will give us a whole load of information with uh, linkages to the uh, superior temporal sulcus and, and a variety of other, uh, other areas of the, uh, of the body. We now have a great interest in uh, these mirror neurons or neurons that are going to fire when you watch somebody else doing uh, what, they're, what they're going to do. Uh, it's big, big, big in autism and ADHD where these mirror neurons are not activated. <clears throat> good, re uh, good references for that is the work by Rizzolatti, R-I-Z-Z-O-L-A-T-T-I, -Z -Z -T -T very, very current. And uh, this is very important when we look at the uh, mirror neurons that are associated with various states of attention. And they're going to re be responding when you watch somebody else do something. And when kids especially don't have these types of activities, then we look at these individual uh, neurons, especially uh, neurons that are in the lateral interparietal area where these mirror neurons are, are actually uh, coming. So important aspects of the uh, frontal parietal uh, reality with uh, different types of linkages to the deactic gaze processing in the anterior um, and superior temporal sulcus. Very, very important. So what the heck does all of this mean? Basically, uh, we've got a lot of practical information because we look at people. They look back at us. And when we do this, we see a whole variety of different things and different reactions to different uh, social uh, realities so that we need to be able to understand that cognitive changes can be done. In other words, if you can do something that has got a frontal stimulation, uh, you're going to be able to affect a person's ability to work, to maintain a job, to, to look at an interpersonal type of uh, relationship. If you don't see a kid that's uh, gaze following, they're going to have some language problems. We've got to jump on that immediately, do labyrinthine stimulation, vestibular stimulation, cerebellar activity, things that will feed forward to the front of their individual uh, brain to increase this development of the mind, not only uh, aspects of... Uh, of cortical uh, integration, and this has a profound consequence to to society. We know that we've got to be able to understand both our egocentric and allocentric uh, spaces, especially in regards to the uh, the constructs of what is in our environment. This is obviously an important foundation for uh, perspective abilities and the attribution of a variety of mental states from uh, people that are somnolent to people that are manic. Now, it's very interesting when you look at kids that little toddlers are capable of geometric gaze following, but they have difficulty when they're asked to report the direction that they're, they're looking at. They can follow you, but they don't know where they're, they're going. In other words, is it left or is it right or... <clears throat> point to the area. So gaze following is widespread 
among you know all primates as well as humans and and even dogs and birds and all these other sorts of things it's it's something that we know is reflexogenic but it's modulated by different cues and and uh, socially specific processing mechanism many of us when we treat patients look at certain signs of pathology but we we really don't get into what's happening cognitively but your procedures that you do that activate brain can be looked at with uh, by looking at a person's gaze following and, and seeing things that happen the visual cues uh, periocular luminance the features of someone's face can can really activate these individual uh, mechanisms that are seen in normal people and, and they're seen in, in pathology so that we know that there's a variety of things that involve the pathway of uh, following gaze that are going to allow us to to really look at the, the amygdala uh, and do things. For instance, if you have someone who doesn't follow gaze and you do different smells and tastes and, and give them facial types of uh, patterns, showing them pictures, uh, doing cerebellar stimulation, all of a sudden they start to develop a following of gaze. Well, you've done some wonderful things to them. We know uh, that averted gaze has a consequence. We know how the posterior and anterior superior temporal sulcus regions are going to uh, be different in their contribution to social behavior. And we know that bad social behavior is not good for any of us. So, And it's not good for people who can get frustrated, lose jobs, not be employable. We know that gaze-following responses can be suppressed. For instance, uh, someone's looking at you, don't look at them, don't look at them, they're going to get you, don't look the vampire in the eye. This is the whole consequence that we see in the wonderful stories of Greek mythology with Medusa. That's that gaze-following things. Oh my God, I can feel her eyes looking. Don't look at her, she's going to turn you into stone. These things are are innately involved in our psyche. We've got both the neural and behavioral uh, consequences. We know that we have spatial selectivity of these deactic gaze following uh, responses. And uh, these things are such that social interactions are, are very, very important. They're robust. It's absolutely fascinating. So the next time you look in someone's eyes or they look at you, Perhaps you'll have a little bit of an indication of what might be going on. Okay, well, that's it uh, for gaze. There's a whole load more you could read about this. It's really, really uh, big, 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 big now. And there's a lot of people that are, that are studying it. So you can look it up and spend the rest of your life just looking at gaze following in, in humans, goal direction and stimulus-driven types of effects, uh, uh, how kids are going to interpret uh, the way you're looking at them, the the different coding in the superior temporal sulcus and the inferior parietal lobe of different gaze uh, directions, the neuroethology, the the evolution of social gazes, all these things are absolutely rich. And um, do some reading on your own if you want further types of things. I can do more for you, but I think you're going to find it very exciting and look at some clinical realities. So thanks for listening to that. Hey, this has been heavy, so let me give you some cool tunes to have fun with. Hang in there. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on CarrickInstitute.com.